hppodcraft.com. I think Lovecraft, as he went on, realized that this is something he could build on. That 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 adding to to these to this myth cycle that he had created resulted in stories that became more than just stories. They became an entire universe. All right, we're back at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. And that opening uh, excerpt that we just heard was from an interview we did with a certain scholar. A scholar by the name of S.T. Joshi, who is uh, the Lovecraftian scholar, the living Lovecraftian scholar, and maybe of all time Lovecraftian scholar, having written... <laughs> Over 20 different books or publications uh, uh, involving the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, and uh, we we actually originally did an interview with ST because we wanted to cut it into our Call of Cthulhu episodes, but we just had so much goodness to talk about in those three episodes that we didn't really have room for it, and so we wanted to play the uh, whole thing here. Also, we sort of meandered in on some other topics about Lovecraft's life and and even about his uh, his sartorial habits, his his suit buying uh, phase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we're just gonna play that for you here now. It's a it's a phone interview that Chris and I did with SD. Yes, right. Anything you wanted to add to that before we roll it? It's sweet. Anything else you want to add to that? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, SD Joshi was uh, really great and uh, a good guy to talk to, and uh, hopefully we'll have him back on the show again. Yeah, I hope so. All right, and uh, here is the interview. This is Chad Pfeiffer, joined, of course, by Chris Lackey, and we are here on the phone with preeminent Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi. S.T., welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've just been covering The Call of Cthulhu in our last few episodes, and we've had a few thoughts on the transition in Lovecraft's writing upon returning to Providence from his, his short stint in New York. We noticed that his writing after his move seemed a lot more sophisticated, a lot more rich. Do you have any thoughts about what might have been going on with him, why he seemed to improve so much? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say because the transition really was uh, astoundingly fast. I mean, it's, if you look at how much he wrote in a very short period of time after coming back from that horrible period in New York, uh, he never had any that, that kind of outburst of fiction uh, before or since. I mean, Call of Tulu, Color Out of Space, Charles Dexter Ward, Dreamcrest of Unknown Kedath, Silver Key, Pickman's Model, I mean, and even a couple other things. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's as if that return uh, from New York just opened some sort of floodgate, not only in terms of quantity, but, as you suggest, also in terms of this incredible uh, you know, quality and, and, and sophistication that we really hadn't seen before. I think what was happening is that he really felt bottled up creative, creatively in New York. He just couldn't write in that environment. I mean, he, I think he came to realize how much uh, his hometown of Providence meant to him, how much that, that whole New England milieu uh, meant to him, that he simply was, he was himself an outsider. Uh, in fact, he calls himself an alien uh, in New York City, which is interesting because, of course, he, he had a uh, certain uh, contempt for other aliens, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, racially speaking. So uh, it's interesting that he acknowledged that he was himself an alien in, in the uh, environment of, of New York. 
Um, I mean, the, the stuff he wrote in New York was really quite poor. Only three, three fairly insignificant works of fiction, one of which, The Hard Red Hook, I think is one of his worst pieces of, of work. And he, I think he acknowledged that, too. So I think that, you know, uh, W. Paul Cook made an interesting remark. He, he felt that Lovecraft had to go through that New York phase to understand what kind of a man and what kind of a, a writer he was. You know, Cook said he, he came back pure gold. Um, it's as if Lovecraft needed to get away from New England to realize how much New England meant to him. And so when he came back, all this stuff just came out. Yeah, it's sort of like how Hemingway said he had to move to Paris to write about Michigan. That's right. <laughs> well, I was just curious, I mean, how much do you, or do you think at all, uh, how much uh, of his his marriage ending, if, if there was something, because he doesn't write too much about his relationship like in his letters there isn't we don't have too much insight really about what went on in there do we yeah no we don't we don't um what we would love to have of course are his letters to his own wife you know to sonia well especially before they married him he she said that he he would write 30 40 page letters to her you know and uh, once a week or something like that but then of course she says that you know after the divorce and then in the, in the 1930s she went out into a field and burned Burn all his them. letters oh my uh, god oh, that, yes. that's so painful to think about uh but hey that that's her choice you know um, yeah so uh, yeah, and he's he's he doesn't really let his hair down uh, about what was going on. Uh, to his aunts, he kind of does. You read those letters to his aunts during that New York period, you get a pretty good idea uh, of, of what was happening. Of course, she wasn't even there for much of that period, especially right. not 1925. She had right. to go to the, go to work in the Midwest and only came right. back a couple of weeks at a time. Um, I think Lafayette also realized that the marriage was a mistake, and and he he wrote about it very indirectly and maybe not so indirectly in that later sort of the thing on the doorstep which i think is a clear uh. reflection of his own marriage to to to, a, to an older woman who was perhaps a little domineering in fact frank bellenlap long told me that that he used that exact word to me when when he described sonia that she was somewhat of a domineering person wow. sort of like asnath wait who knows a little bit like that uh-huh. um so, so that comes through. Um, although Lovecraft said later on, oh, you know, I, I can't detect any difference in my writing before I married and after I married. Well, I don't know if that's <laughs> entirely true. I mean, you know, he never talks about sex or anything like that anyway no, in no. his fiction, uh, except, except very covertly. I mean, you know, clearly there was some sort of shenanigans going on in, in, in uh, the Dunwich Horror with uh, Lavinia Waitley and, and in Thing on the Doorstep, but aside from that, you don't, you don't get too much there. But Yeah, we always laugh about Thing on the Doorstep because the female character turns out to actually be a man anyway. I know, that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this, this fellow has married his, uh, you know, his father-in-law or something. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty weird. Um, but Lafayette doesn't even, you know, suggest anything like that. Um, no, no. I think it's more, yeah, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't see a lot of the, the I, think, I think he was just, I mean, let's be honest, I think he was glad to be rid of Sonia. I mean, he realized that was kind of a mistake also. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was just not the marrying kind. He, he, he liked, you know, it, it's not true that he was a misogynist or anything like that. Like that. That's, just, that's just a falsehood. He, he liked women, friends, but they wanted, he wanted them to be just friends, you know, correspondents. He had a number of good women correspondents, and that, but that, that's kind of what he wanted. Uh, and he liked to have, you know, the protection of his aunts, you know, one one aunt uh, or the other, uh, sort of looking after him while he did his thing. Uh, and that's what he got when he came back to Providence. Uh, well, I was wondering, uh, specifically, you know, Call of Cthulhu is one of Lovecraft's most 
I mean, popular stories. And, you know, a lot of people have, have you know, know it and know what it's about. And Cthulhu, of course, has just permeated our culture uh, in a subculture, of course. But what do you think about the Call of Cthulhu? Why it's so popular, has resonated with so many people, and it's kind of really spawned all of these, you know, imitators and people that want to keep writing in the setting? Well, um, it's, it's a great story. It's a brilliantly constructed story, I think. I love that sense, the, the, the sort of the, the narrative fragmentation that goes on, you know, which, which reflects that opening line of the story, the correlating of the contents. You know, o- only at the end yeah. do we realize how all these disparate pieces of, of information finally hang together. Um, but, you know, you have to realize, of course, if Lovecraft had written just The Call of Tulu and none of the other later stories, Maybe the mythos would have happened, maybe not. But, you know, I think Lovecraft, as he went on, realized that this is something he could build on, that, that, that adding to, to, these, to this myth cycle that he had created resulted in stories that became more than just stories. They became an entire universe of, of, of uh, you know, fictive imagination. Yeah. Uh, therefore, they became greater than the sum of their parts. And that, I think, is what really captured people's imaginations. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, uh, most people that we speak with about Lovecraft, they had a moment maybe in the early teens or mid-teens where they got their hands on that first paperback copy of Lovecraft stories, and it sort of set their imagination on fire and brought them to this lifelong preoccupation with uh, unknowable, unnameable things out there gibbering in the dark. Did you have a moment like that? Well, here's the funny thing. Um, yeah, I discovered Lovecraft, of course, in my early teens, as almost everyone else does, maybe 12, 13, 14, something like that. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly. But the funny thing is, I made, I made the mistake, in, in fact, of starting by trying to read At the Mountains of Madness, <laughs> which is a very dense piece of work, you know. And, yeah. and when I was, uh, you know, I, and I, at that time, I didn't have much training in science. My, my high school or junior high school was terrible in science, so didn't didn't, didn't know much about it. So I... I, I I said, you know, about halfway through, I said, oh, my God, this is, this is like, way beyond me. It's like, this, you, you need a Ph.D. to understand this book. Um, so I put it away. You know, I, I didn't, hadn't heard of Lovecraft. I just saw his books in my public library, and it, it sounded kind of interesting, um, you know, just the titles. Uh, so I picked up At the Mount of the Madness, and, and I just said, I, I can't get through this. You know, this is just too wow. dense for me. So then I put that back. A couple months later, I started The Dunwich Horror and others, and that, that got me. Not the first two stories. I, I, in fact, I thought In the Vault, I, to, to this day, I think In the Vault is a pretty bad story. The, the I story agree. I, mean, I, I don't know what possessed August Sterling to, to put that as the lead story of that, but that was a huge mistake. Uh, and, and even the next story, Pickman's Model, doesn't really, I really don't run a temperature over Pickman's Model, frankly. Um, although I love that, that Boston background, and I've gone, I've actually been to Cops Hill Bearing Ground in North End, of course, which is all different now, but nevertheless, uh, I've, yeah. you know, I, I have uh, trod on Footman's, uh, Pickman's footsteps in that, that <laughs> but, uh, even, uh, even that I don't think is such a great story, but then the rats in the walls, I think that actually is what got to me, and then, then you know, that sucked me in, and then just I just consumed the rest of the volume, and, and, and every one of the other stories is, is fabulous in that book, um, and so that that's what really got to me. Yeah, we had some disagreement over in the vault. Chris didn't like it. Um, I liked it for its Tales from the Crypt style kind of goofiness, but we were in agreement about Rats in the Walls, and a lot of people have told us that it was the first Lovecraft story that really got to them. Yeah, it's another flawless uh, short story. I mean, really, one of the most tightly constructed short stories that I've ever read. 
Yeah. yeah. Love it. We use your books as a lot of reference for our show. So uh, I was wondering if there's any particular, particularly interesting nuggets about the Call of Cthulhu that you may, you know, have, you know, filed away somewhere or some ideas that you may, you know, some thoughts that you've had on that something you might not have necessarily wanted to publish, but maybe, you know, an interesting idea or, or uh, some bits of information or suspicions that you might have about something in the story. Does that make any sense? Um, well, yeah, it kind of does. Well, I'll tell you, there was one, there was one piece of frustrating uh, uh, in, uh, situation because in the selected letters, when as, as Lovecraft has finished the story in, in like summer or fall of 1926, he says he writes to Clark Ashton Smith saying, "Oh yeah, here's this story, this sunken land story that that I talked about a year ago," and so here it is. So I said, "Oh wow, what what did he what would he have said to Smith a year before?" In, in, because you know he had outlined the story about in August of 1925 when he was still in New York, and that's the incredible thing. Uh, in fact, that early early first two weeks of August of 25 were, were incredible. In August 1st and 2nd, he wrote the hard Red Hook. Then about ten nine days later, he went on this long sort of antiquarian uh, tour of, of uh, like Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and, and places like that, mm-hmm. and he wrote. The story he, he yeah. and the very next day you can t- you know we have his di- little diary of 1925 only a couple lines per day but then he says then, then the very next day he says write out story plot the call of Clue I mean he has actually already come up with the title then with the name Clue at that time uh-huh. so I said wow what what could this be so after many years we finally got Lovecraft's letters to Clark Ashton Smith, and they'll be published, I hope, next year in, a, in an annotated edition. Oh, nice. But he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He's like, oh, oh. I, I have this idea. <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating. I would love to know what would have, what was his idea. Did he had actually work out the whole story plot? He must have, I suppose. You know, because he doesn't say, oh, well, it's, it's totally different from what I said before or whatever. Um, but it's incredible to think that he had actually worked out the entire plot a full year before he wrote the story, but he just he couldn't couldn't write it in New York. It was the atmosphere was all wrong, so he had to come back to Providence to write it. Now I believe I heard a story that Lovecraft was was burglarized in when he was living in New oh, York. Oh yeah, but... yeah, he, that was kind of a sad situation. I mean, it's, it's it's so typical that robbers rob the poor instead of the rich, you know, so often because because the poor can't afford to, to you know any protection. Yeah, he was he was living in this real dump in in Brooklyn Heights. I say dump because. Now Brooklyn Heights is a very expensive part of Brooklyn. Now it's really it's gotten been renovated. Gentrified, and, and, yeah. Oh, totally gentrified now. I mean, his his apartment. If you're still a private resident, it must be. I mean, I don't even know what to think. What 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 it costs now to live there? Uh, but in his day, it was exactly ten dollars a week. You know, uh, it was dirt cheap. You know, it was the cheapest thing he could afford, and it happened to be near some of his other friends, like Samuel Loveman and Hart Crane. But mm-hmm. uh, and he thought it would be an okay place to. Be, but it was it was uh, just a rat trap. I mean, he literally he had mice and oh, it was awful. But he basically he was living in this basically one room apartment with what he called a little dressing alcove. Now, for and that alcove actually had a door leading out to the hallway, I guess, of the, of the building. And that the, the that door was not well uh, latched. I think the, the the latch or lock was broken or something, and he, he never bothered to get it fixed. The landlord never fixed it. So one day he was literally he was sleeping in the main room, which is where his I guess they had some sort of uh, 
bed or sofa bed or something. Um, he was sleeping, you know, and his schedule was all weird. You know, he slept during the day a lot of times, and and so he, uh, so he was sleeping there, and and these people, whatever they were, robbers, broke into this dressing up, took all his clothing. I mean, all his, he like took three of his four suits, the only suit mm. that didn't lose was the one that was hanging on the chair in the main room. You know, they didn't go into the main room. Uh, so they took three of his suits and his, and, and these, you know, winter coats and, and even a, a radio set that Loveman was storing there and a bunch of other stuff. And, oh, he was, he was crestfallen. I mean, it was like the total, the complete symbol of why Lovefair shouldn't be in New York City. It's like, my God. Uh, and so it's funny. He spent the next several months becoming a very shrewd uh, bargain hunter for suits because Lovecraft did not feel comfortable without four suits, two you know two light suits for summer and two dark uh, uh, two heavier suits for winter. And right now he only had the one you know I think a one summer suit. So he, he literally he goes on and on. I mean, he, he charts this this adventure of of finding cheap suits in you know multiple letters to his aunts, going on and on and on and on about about where where to go to get cheap suits, and he and, and how he bargains people down. I mean, oh, man, I would love to read that. It's I mean, it becomes kind of you know disturbing. You know, he's clearly kind of uh, uh, you know uh, what is the term. Um, a little obsessive compulsive about this whole situation. Right. But, you know, I mean, you know, being properly dressed was very important to Lovecraft. He didn't want to look like a bum. He didn't tell, I heard, and maybe this is not true, but I heard he, he didn't tell his friends about this, that he kept it secret, that he was robbed. Um, is that true or no? I don't, well, I don't know. No, I think, I think he must have told at least some close friends like Frank Long. Uh, because he, he, he also solicited their advice as to where he could get cheap oh, suits. But, yeah, so I think he, I mean, he, and they knew it's hard, it's hard to conceal something like that. So I think sure. they know. But, uh, it, it was very mortifying to Lovecraft. So you know, so so that's maybe one of those great pieces of Lovecraft's fiction that is still yet to be canonized. The suit in the window, or, or something like that. <laughs> that last italicized <laughs> sentence. You know, I didn't like the way I looked. Yeah, I mean, um, he literally draws a picture of the suit that he, you know, that he that he really likes. I mean, I mean, it's just it's it's incredible. He just goes on and on and on. So. Uh, I mean, kind of sad too. There are some fragments of Lovecraft stories out there that we've covered on the show, like The Descendant, and we've always felt maybe unsure if we should be talking about them because they weren't meant for publication. How do you feel about that? A- anything by Lovecraft is is worth reading and worth discussing. I mean, that's just that that's just a tribute to his stature as a writer. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want to put a great deal of weight in these fragments, uh, but but they're very interesting for to suggest you know where his imagination was going. Uh, that that story, the descendant, um, I think was he he wanted to set a story in London because he in the spring of 1927, again toward the end of his this great burst of fiction writing when he just finished Case of Charles Award, he said he was doing a lot of studying of London, uh, you know, topography and and things like that because he wanted to set a story there, and I think that's where the descendant came from, and he started writing this thing. But it's clear he didn't really have a plot. He didn't know where to go with this story. I mean, he was talking. He talks about the Necronomicon, and uh, but he got hung up. I mean, he didn't really have a plot worked out clearly. Um, so he, it's just a, you know a false uh, you know uh, false thread there. It just it, it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, my story, my theory about the, the the fragment called the book, 
which was written later, like in the 30s, is that that's an attempt to write out the fungi from Yugoth sonnet sequence. Uh, because it's clear, that, <laughs> it's clear that that, that fragment, you, again, it's a guy going into a bookstore and finding weird, some weird book. I don't know if he actually calls it the Necronomicon. I can't remember. Maybe uh-huh. he does, maybe he doesn't. But, uh, you know, coming back and, you know, again, strange things sort of happening. But then it just sort of peters out after that. Uh, but the, that fragment clearly is a kind of attempt to rewrite in prose the, at least the first three sonnets of the Fungi from Yugoth. Uh, but again, Lovecraft got stalled. I think he said, oh, well, where do I go from here now? I mean, what do I do with this thing? Um, it, that fragment was written, I think, at a time when his career was a little... I mean, he was he was having trouble. Uh, he had gotten some rejections, you know, at the Mount of the Madness had gotten rejected by, by Weird Tales. Uh, a collection of his stories had gotten rejected by Putnam's and, and uh, actually, no, and then Knopf in 1933, uh, you know, he initially solicited him for a story, but then re- a story collection, and then rejected him. He was really kind of down in the dumps. You know, these these rejections really affected him uh, painfully, and so I think he didn't know where, didn't know where to go with his writing. So he was just doing some experimentation to see if he could, you know, revive himself. We have a lot of laughs on the show, sometimes at the expense of the writing, but also Chris Chris and I have read plenty of Lovecraft. But as we've gone back through the stories, I found that Lovecraft actually had a pretty great sense of humor. Uh, maybe that wasn't clear to me before. That's right. It takes a while to pick pick up on that uh, because you know Lovecraft's very keen on 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 creating a sort of you know very intense atmosphere of horror and and you know in his letters he says oh I don't think humor and horror mix very well but I think he was referring to things that that sort of make fun of horror like you know Oscar Wilde's The Canterville Ghost or or H.G. Uh, Wells' The Inexperienced Ghost which almost sort of you know make fun of horror as a genre and Lovecraft probably took offense at that. Um, he his humor though is is subtle but and and concealed uh, and and sort of under the surface but it's there it, it really comes out at uh, curious moments. I I'm just preparing an annotated edition of the case of Charles Victor Ward, which should come out later from University of Tampa Press this year, um, and there's some, there's some really funny things in there if you read it carefully. For example, all right, so here's here's Doctor Willett, you know, who's gone through that uh, you know that underground. Uh, Area pit in you know that yeah. uh, Joseph Corwin kept his uh, these horrible creatures that he fashioned from imperfect salt you know and he right. he you know actually taken the the, the 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 lid off of one of them and you know there's this horrible you know, half half finished entity down there that actually apparently crunches his uh, his uh, flashlight and stuff like that. So he comes out of it and says, oh, God, that was awful. But he says, he vowed to leave no stone unturned to get to the bottom. Of course, that's referring to that, uh, you know, that, that pit that he uncovered as well. So right, that's, uh, yes, that's yes. A very, very funny little pun that he, that he throws in there at, at what you think is a climactic moment in the story. And, right. and maybe the first two or three or four or five times you read it, you don't get it. But then, then you said, oh, my God, that's, that's really pretty funny. Well, I mean, even in um, Reanimator, you know, kind of that there's a sort of, um, you know, Herbert West keeps saying, he goes, well, the body just wasn't fresh enough. Like every time, you know, at the end of every part of that state. So it was almost yeah. like, it was almost funny. Oh, my, my, my contention, and I know there's no way to prove this, is that Lovecraft started writing Herbert West with a straight face, but as he went along, he says, this story's preposterous. And <laughs> it became a parody later on, because the, the, the way that, that 
Gilbert Rice tries to reanimate the dead, it becomes more and more outlandish. Yeah, and, yes. You know, toward the end, he's only reanimating parts of the dead. You know, like yes. he has this this head. You know, in a in a, in a you know, vat of uh, whatever formaldehyde or something, you know, in the, in the back of the room. Yes, yeah. It just becomes just totally absurd at the end. And I think The Hound also. The Hound is hilariously funny. Yes. And yet horrifying also. Uh, but but there, there's some really funny stuff in The Hound as well. Well, there's a, a kind of... It's a piece that Lovecraft in in early in the early days was it Sweet Urban Guard? Is that the name? Sweet Urban Guard. Oh yeah, I tell you, I I at at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon, one year, maybe two years ago, I brought that story to read to the audience, <laughs> and if I may say so, I I, I floored them. I just broke them up. <laughs> it is a hilarious story. <laughs> I mean, Lovecraft really could have been a good good uh, comic writer if he if he wanted to be, and you know he wrote that one. He wrote a reminiscence of Samuel Johnson, which is you know which is sort of funny. Uh, Ibid, that uh, little thing about Ibid is pretty funny. But but Sweet Army God really is the is the crown jewel of Lovecraft's uh, comic stories. <laughs> yeah, so I just got copies of my new anthology, uh, Black Wings: Tales of Lovecraftian Horror, uh, all original stories. Some, some really sensational pieces. I mean, they're all good, but uh, uh, I particularly like the ones by, like, Caitlin Kiernan and, and Michael Shea and Laird Barron, and, uh, oh, we have a good good, uh, good uh, cast list here. And in fact, uh, the publisher, uh, Pete Crowther of PS Publishing in England, already wants a second volume, and I've already set up a, uh, uh, a list of contributors for, for a second volume, maybe two years down the road. When is, uh, when is that going to be available for us to buy? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I mean, right now the book is published only in the U.K., although I think you can, I mean, you can order copies from the U.K., and maybe there's some book dealers in the U.S. that, that have some. Uh, I have an agent working on getting a U.S. publisher uh, for this book, and, and hopefully the next one, too. So I, I hope this will be available here more widely. Well, I'll be picking it up here in the U.K. <laughs> Good. <laughs> one more plug, maybe you know about this. My, my unabridged Lovecraft biography is coming out in two volumes later this summer from Hippocampus. The, the, the version published by Necronomicon Press uh, in ni- 1996 was a mere 350,000 words, <laughs> like 500 and some thousand words. Uh, so uh, you'll get even more of my maunderings about Lovecraft, lots more detail about a, a lot of things. So uh, uh, if you want to read even even more day-by-day accounts of what Lovecraft is doing, <laughs> you, you can pick that up. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Joshi, yes. we want to thank you very much. Thank you for all of your work. Uh, it's been really important to the show, and I hope we can have you on again. Hey, it's, it was great talking to you. So there it is. There it was. There, wow. Man, that was great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. I, it I don't was. know. ST was okay, but those interviewers were incredible. Those guys were awesome. They were on fire. So many good questions. They're the ones that had to work. He already knew all that stuff. That's right. <laughs> they had all the hard stuff to do. Yeah. They did the heavy lifting. <laughs> um, uh, so, so uh, the plugs that the, the ST's books. We'll put some links up on the show notes so you can check yes. those out. Hopefully, some... uh, in future episodes, we'll have him back on to discuss a little further. Absolutely, and I'm definitely going to be adding those to my collection. That's right. Uh, now, let's speaking of <laughs> speaking of collections. Uh, uh, so, mm, two black bottles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next week, however, we're going to be taking some time off, maybe one or two weeks, depending on our, our schedule, because Chad and I have two conflicting things going. Chad's going to be out of town one time, and then I'm going to be out of town. 
So right. it might be two weeks, but we might be able to work it in at some point, maybe just one. No promises. We do want to talk about the story Two Black Bottles, which is a collaboration that Lovecraft did with Wilford. I, I shouldn't say Wilford. Wilfred? Wilfred? Yeah. Wilfred Branch Tallman. Uh, I'm excited to cover that one. I'm yeah. looking forward to talking about it. Okay. Well, with that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Bam! HPPodcraft.com. Ah!